This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The oceans just keep getting hotter, even during this El Nino year, and despite the pandemic. Our guest is Dr. Kevin Trenberth, Distinguished Scholar at NCAR, the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. With Kevin, we always learn how the Earth really works. Meanwhile, the consumer economy roars on, doesn't it? Consuming wildlife, plants, and the future. Once a consumer, it is very hard to quit. Award-winning Canadian author Michael Harris talks about his latest book, All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. All that, plus more heat records in January and the carbon capture plant that spews out more greenhouse gas than it supposedly saves. This is Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Our guest is a widely known climate scientist. Dr. Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished scholar at NCAR, the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. He also works with the University of Auckland. Kevin was a lead author of both the 2001 and 2007 IPCC Scientific Assessment of Climate Change. From New Zealand, Kevin Trenberth, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Well, we're going to talk about your new paper published January 11th, and it's titled Another Record, Ocean Warming Continues Through 2021 Despite La Nina Conditions. There are 23 authors to this paper. It's led by Li Jing Cheng. The obvious first question, Kevin, how much warmer were the world oceans in 2021? That's a good question. The actual number is 14 zeta joules, but that means zeta is a prefix which means there are 21 zeros after the 14, and then the unit is joule. So these are units of energy, and for comparison... About half a zettajoule is equivalent to all of the energy that is used by humanity around the globe. Global energy use is about half a zettajoule, and so it's about you know 28 times uh, that amount. So it's a huge increase uh, in the amount of energy, and and that goes into heat in the ocean. Well, I know models are used to develop conclusions about the causes of warming, but this report on continuing ocean heating, it's based on hard measurements? Oh, yes. So those measurements have become really solid after about 2005. And and somewhere around about 2000, uh, the oceanographers had mastered a new device called uh, a float, a profiling float, and it's under a program called Argo, if you're interested, you can go to Argo or Google Argo and Ocean together and you'll find a map of about 3,900 of these floats uh, distributed around the ocean. Uh, by design, they're supposed to be about uh, 300 kilometers apart. Uh, there are a few gaps in places where it's too shallow, but these floats reside about one kilometer depth. They have a chamber inside that is either pumped full of water, in which case they sink down to uh, two kilometers depth, and then they vacate the chamber, and it uh, pops back up. And as it rises to the surface, it takes recordings of temperature and salinity, and when it gets to the surface, it radios that information to ground-based stations. And it does this about every week to 10 days. It uh, varies a little bit. 
so we get these measurements, these profiles of temperature and salinity throughout the upper two kilometers of the ocean, and we've had those. The real global coverage is solid after 2008. We can certainly use it back to uh, somewhat earlier, but based upon that information, we've been able to use the older observations that were from individual ships uh, called expendable bathythermographs, and we've been able to reconstruct the record back to 1958. Uh, you can't go back further than that. 1957-58 was International Geophysical Year, and that's when observations began in Antarctica and ships began sailing down to Antarctica, so the southern oceans began to get covered around about that time. So we have a, a record that we have used, and it's a very interesting record. I know that James Hansen, uh, formerly of NASA, uh, a tremendous scientist, insists that the key number we need to know is not really parts per million in the atmosphere, but it's Earth's energy imbalance, the difference between the amount of the sun's energy arriving on the planet and how much escapes back into space. Do you think that the ocean, rather than the atmosphere or land, is the best place to measure that energy imbalance? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, and, of course, I've been a strong advocate for that for even longer than Jim. I have a new book that is just out that is, uh, deals with all of that in a great deal of detail. It's called The Changing Flow of Energy Through the Climate System. And so Earth's energy imbalance, about 93% of that energy imbalance ends up in the ocean. Uh, about half of the rest goes into melting ice, uh, Greenland, Antarctica, glaciers. You know, but of course they're mainly at very high latitudes and they only cover a small fraction of the planet. Most of the other half goes into the land, so the land is slowly warming, although we don't have very good observations of that. And there's a very tiny amount, uh, less than 1%, less than half of a percent, that goes into the atmosphere to warm the atmosphere. And so the ocean is where the bulk of this heat goes, and tracking ocean heat is the best indicator that the planet is actually heating up, that climate change is really underway. It's where the energy ends up after a lot of other stuff has happened in the atmosphere relating to weather and El Nino and storms and so on. And, of course, some of that energy escapes back to space in, in the process of that. But, as I say, most of it ends up in the ocean. I, I should say also that the second best indicator is actually sea level rise because uh, as the ocean warms up, it, it increases sea level. And, of course, uh, the melting of glaciers and ice also puts more water into the ocean, which adds to sea level. And so sea level rise is uh, the second best indicator that the planet is warming. Your paper title says, Despite La Nina Conditions. So why is that important? Because... If you look at the global mean surface temperature record as put out by NASA or NOAA or a group in Europe called Copernicus, uh, it's the fifth or sixth warmest you know, on record for the global mean surface temperature. And that's because a huge expanse of the tropical Pacific is relatively cool because of the La Nina phenomenon. And so that covers quite an extensive area, but that cool area means also that there's less activity in that area. There's less cloudiness, and yet it's in the deep tropics, and so the sun is beating down, and the, the, the energy goes somewhere, and it goes into the ocean. And so the energy certainly is still there, 
and it's getting stored in the ocean, uh, and the ocean is picking up even more energy during La Nina events, and in spite of the fact that it appears to be cool at the surface. But then during El Nino events, and the biggest one we had recently was 2015-16, the ocean gives some heat back to the atmosphere, to the climate system, and that's actually why 2016 is the warmest year on record in terms of the global mean surface temperature, because some of the heat, not only directly from you know what humans are doing, but also some of the heat came out of the ocean. I'm kind of dreading the next El Nino year, but we will see. Now, reading your paper, it looks like oceans have added a lot more heat in the last, say, two decades than in the previous 30 years, and that sounds like an alarming acceleration. Is that correct? Yes, that's true, of course, and, and, and global warming really kicked in. If you look at the surface temperature record, you would say it really kicked in about uh, the mid-1970s. That's when the signal of global warming, if you like, uh, exceeded the noise of natural variability. But if you look at the ocean, uh, it's only after about 1980 that the top 500 meters of the ocean has a clear uh, signature of warming. And then the next layer, 500 to 1 kilometer depth, is really warming from about the late 1980s on. And then from 1 kilometer depth to 1,500 meters depth, it's from about the late 1990s on, uh, and then below 1,500 meters depth, it's from about 2005 on, that we can really see the warming of the ocean. So the, the warmth is gradually penetrating down, but it takes time for that to happen, but uh, this warmth is involving more and more of the ocean. In a previous EcoShock interview, you reported results gathered by international scientists up to the year 2019. That was before the pandemic. Now we have the update for 2021. Does it look like shutdowns during the pandemic reduced our warming of the sea? No, not at all. Uh, There's been a lot of reports of that nature that there was less uh, emissions into the atmosphere, and that's probably true in terms of things like airplanes and and cars and and even uh, a lot of human activities. But at the same time, you may notice that during the last two or three years, there's been an enormous number of wildfires. And so the wildfires in Australia and then uh, in California, uh, in particular throughout the West this past year, those wildfires have actually compensated and they've put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere And so if you look at the actual concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it has just gone continuously, relentlessly up, and you wouldn't know there was a pandemic at all in that particular record. So although you can see it evidently in terms of the emissions, when you break those down, you find that, oh, you have to also include what you might call, I suppose, the the natural emissions, but, you know, these are wildfires, and they, they also have a a human source, of course, as well. Are there limits to how much the ocean can absorb over a year, like some kind of braking system? Uh, Well, maybe to some extent. And the ocean, one way of thinking about it is the ocean doesn't like to get too hot in any particular location in the tropics. And and so ocean currents are partly a response to that. In fact, the El Nino phenomenon is really driven by the buildup of heat that occurs during La Nina times or even normal times. 
And that heat builds up over in the far western Pacific, and there's a deep warm pool over towards Indonesia that builds up over time. And then at some point, that amount of heat gets so great that the ocean says, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to get rid of some of this heat. And so it has an El Nino event, and some of that heat spreads across the Pacific, and then it uh, goes up the coast along uh, the Americas, both north and south, and some of that heat can be traced you know, past Seattle and Vancouver and all the way up to Alaska, and it affects all of the salmon fisheries and has profound effects throughout the Pacific Ocean. And uh, as it's doing all of this, a lot of that heat goes into the atmosphere, mainly in the form of moisture evaporating from the surface. And so the evaporative cooling of the ocean cools the ocean down, and the ocean gets rid of some heat, but it warms the atmosphere in the process, and there's more vigorous storms. Most of those storms occur over the Pacific, and so uh, the distribution of storms tends to get changed. And during La Nina events, as we've seen in the last couple of years, there's more uh, tropical storm activity in the Atlantic. And so there's a little bit of a competition, if you like, for whether the activity is in the Atlantic or the Pacific in that regard, and El Nino plays a big role. There are also ocean currents uh, in the Atlantic that move heat around, and, and so they begin to play a role as well. And so all of the heating that's going on is certainly also invoking a response within the ocean. Uh, and on the other hand, there is an overall warming that's occurring, and it means the warming is coming from the top down, which means the ocean is becoming more stratified, which makes it more stable. In other words, the ocean uh, is generally a stable configuration because it's warm water sitting on top of colder water. The deep ocean is very cold, uh, and this makes the gradients in the vertical, temperature gradients in the vertical, even greater, and that inhibits mixing, which means it does inhibit the uptake of the ocean by of oxygen and, and carbon dioxide, for that matter. So there's, it ultimately will slow down the uptake of carbon dioxide. Uh, you know, out of the total emissions that we put into the atmosphere each year, about 27% of them go into the ocean at the current time, and uh, about uh, a quarter of them also go into the biosphere, so trees grow a bit more vigorously and so on, and about half of it remains in the atmosphere. And so that uh, kind of process gets uh, affected. But also the nutrients and the oxygen that are needed for all of the organisms in the ocean can be impacted by this, and so it can have an adverse effect on the, all of marine life. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is leading scientist Kevin Trenberth in New Zealand. We're going over the latest scientific report on continuing ocean warming. We were all impressed with that massive volcano erupting closer to you in New Zealand in the Pacific nation of Tonga. The smoke reached the stratosphere, meaning it will go global. Scientists wonder, could the aerosols from Tonga eruptions slow down global warming in 2022? This isn't really your field, but Kevin, are you hearing anything about that? Oh, yes. Well, I've, I've worked in the stratosphere in the more distant past, and I have some interest in that area. Uh, so the, the monitoring that's been going on uh, quite closely, uh, it, it's been really impressive. And there was a, a sound wave that was heard here in New Zealand, and there was a tsunami that also uh, came barreling ashore 
in the northern parts of New Zealand and went into one harbor and destroyed a whole bunch of boats and so on. So it had catastrophic effects. And New Zealand is uh, sending ships and uh, aircraft and, and has been the main nation that has been taking pictures that have been occurring on television news and so on as to the devastation that's occurred in the region. But also there were shockwaves that uh, actually went all around the world. Very interesting. Never seen before, but oh, you know these have been recorded. And some of my colleagues in New Zealand recorded these. These are pressure waves, uh, very short term. And uh, there's also observations in the upper atmosphere uh, that uh, affects uh, some cloudiness that has been recorded. And there's some interesting movie loops that are available to show some of these things as the, as the shockwaves reverberate around the world. But the estimate is that only about, I don't know, one-twentieth of the amount of stuff, the amount of debris, uh, and uh, especially sulfur dioxide and, and particles, got into the stratosphere versus uh, El Chichon or Mount Pinatubo. Mount Pinatubo was in 1991, 92 area, and uh, that did have a significant cooling on the climate. But so far, there's not enough stuff into the stratosphere that will spread out and you know act as a veil to cut down on the amount of sunshine coming into the planet. So at the moment, the estimate is that the influence will be quite small. Well, in the news, Australia recently tied their all-time heat record over 50 degrees C or about 123 degrees Fahrenheit. Heat waves struck Argentina and, and Uruguay this January. But it is a lot harder for journalists to report a global ocean heat wave, or, or can we call it that? Are you reporting general warming trends and then there are even hotter spots in the sea? Oh, well, yes, that's, that's indeed what's happening, of course. Now, in terms of the climate change, the, the main signal is a global one, and so integrating over all of the currents and the natural variability that occurs within the ocean and in its interactions with the atmosphere. However, there are things like the El Nino phenomenon and weather that is going on all the time, and, and so there are patterns of weather that are always occurring. You might think of these as being from natural causes. And so some regions are more stormy and other regions are more settled weather, anticyclonic weather, as we, we refer to it. But that means it's sunny and lighter winds. And those form hotspots in the ocean. And so these hotspots have always occurred, but now they're occurring on top of a warmer ocean and so they're uh, really breaking records. And in some regions where they're long enough, they last long enough, they're called marine heat waves. And so you can Google that and, and find some examples of that. And there have been some really spectacular examples which have had major impacts on the whole of the food web, all the way from uh, phytoplankton to the zooplankton, which are the key food for fish, so it affects all of the fisheries uh, and fish and marine mammals, uh, otters, and seals, and whales, and also birds. All of the owls and of various kinds have been affected. And back in, when was it, 2013-14, there was a major heat wave, marine heat wave in the North Pacific that uh, was thought to have wiped out more than a million cod and uh, had effects on all kinds of species. 
and and so all of that stuff has been documented. Now there are other spots uh, in the tropics, in particular, where when one of these hot spots that develops, uh, it's likely to attract more activity in the atmosphere. And so tropical storms tend to form or get more vigorous in those regions, and we've documented some cases of that. So that uh, the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, uh, was a hot spot in 2017 and formed the basis for uh, Hurricane Harvey and uh, then Maria and Rita and so on. And uh, there have been other hot spots that formed off the coast of the Carolinas in, in 2018 that uh, led to Florence. And so these hot spots can lead to more vigorous hurricanes and tropical storms. Uh, certainly, uh, heavier rainfalls are a consequence of that. But once these storms occur, of course, they take energy out of the ocean uh, through evaporative cooling, and the hot spots, therefore, don't last as long, and so they haven't been given the name marine heat waves in that particular case. But, uh, yes, this is one of the ways in which uh, our weather uh, is being affected by all of these kinds of things on top of the warming ocean. The study looks at warming from the surface down to 2,000 meters or 6,500 feet, way over a mile deep. Presumably, added heat will mix even deeper over time. Is it true to say the deeper the heat goes, the longer it will take to come out, meaning global warming for centuries after humans stop using fossil fuels? Oh, yes, that's very true. And you can there's already some estimates. Uh, so there have been individual measurements, you know, down to the bottom of the ocean, down to great depths from oceanographic ships in earlier years. And the measurements are accurate enough, and the variability is sufficiently small at those depths that newer measurements that are being made have established that, indeed, the deep oceans are warming, but it's a very tiny amount so far. Uh, But nevertheless, that's happening, and you're completely right that uh, all of these uh, impacts in the ocean have a lifetime. Uh, So although a little bit of the heat, it gets down to about 250 meters depth in the tropical Pacific can come back to haunt us within a year or two through the El Nino process. Most of the heat that gets mixed into the ocean is there, and it's really not reversible. And so uh, we have these warmer oceans that we have to live with. And, you know, the deep ocean is turning over on timescales of 10,000 years or, or or very long timescales. And, you know, the intermediate ocean is certainly hundreds of years. And so, so the memory of what's happening right now will continue for centuries into the future. If listeners want to dig deeper into all of this, do you have recommendations of where to look? Uh, well, I have an article on this in, in a reviewed online journal that is called The Conversation. And if you Google The Conversation, you can find uh, a recent article of mine that documents uh, some of this in, uh, in a much less technical way than is done in the actual paper. And in fact, it's been a surprising amount of interest in this, uh, in this article. And so there have been several hundred, about 500 articles written about the paper, as it turns out. And, and so your, your contribution is much appreciated, but it uh, is one of many, as it turns out. 
We've been speaking with leading climate scientist Dr. Kevin Trenberth, and you can find links to all the science and the news we talked about, including that article in the conversation, in my show blog, published Wednesdays at Ecoshock.org. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us. Well, you're most welcome. And uh, my message to the listeners is global warming is alive and well, unfortunately. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. Weather in the Northern Hemisphere is pretty insane this winter, I've got to say. It's been going from spring-like mild to Arctic blasts. For many, it's been storm after storm, a traumatic time. But the heated planet continues in the southern atmosphere. Extreme heat killed millions of chickens in Uruguay this month. Both Brazil and Argentina went through a brutal heat wave. The worst part? The low temperatures at night were above 30 degrees C, or 86 Fahrenheit. During high heat, human physiology depends on cooling down at night. When that doesn't happen, people suffer and heat deaths go up. Parts of Australia are damned hot at the best of times. A few years ago, they had to add another color to their weather maps to capture the new heat extremes. But in January 2022, the country reached the highest temperature ever measured in the Southern Hemisphere. Let me say that again. The highest temperature ever measured in the Southern Hemisphere. In Western Australia, it reached 50.7 degrees C, about 123 degrees Fahrenheit. In a recent Australian newsletter to the New York Times, Megan Dancy suggests getting pummeled with cyclones, and we suppose heat, can lead to a kind of resignation. Feeling powerless before such awesome powers, many Australians easily slip into denial of climate change. Of course, as Megan notes, that also fits in with Australia's rash plans to increase their coal mining. Australia is the world's second largest exporter of coal, powering much of Asia with one of the dirtiest fuels in the world. We love you, Australia, but coal is killing our future, and yours too. How hot can you get? But a Canadian can't point any fingers. Heavy oil from Alberta tar sands may be the most polluting source of energy in the world. It's not really oil when they get it out, it's just sand, gooey with black carbon. To make a hydrocarbon, like oil humans can burn in machines... They have to inject hydrogen into it at high temperatures. Making hydrogen is also energy-intensive, meaning more greenhouse gases. One of the big players, Shell Oil, set up a carbon capture plant at their hydrogen production facility. Shell promotes this green action whenever it can. Now it turns out, with the new report from Global Witness, the Shell facility produces more greenhouse gases than it captures. What a surprise. According to Shell, their Quest hydrogen production plant removed a puny 5 million tons of carbon dioxide in the four years between 2015 and 2019. Global Witness found the same plant released 7.5 million tons of greenhouse gases during that time. That includes the super-warming gas methane, at least 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in the first 10 years it's in the atmosphere. Look, the United Nations and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change totally rely on fantasies of carbon capture and storage. 
to stay under 2 degrees C of warming by the end of the century. It's not like we have a plan to actually end our fossil fuel emissions in time or start reducing quickly. We just have to capture it later, and I'm sure we'll do it, they say. The only problem? We don't have any of that. There are a couple of experimental carbon capture plants, notably one on Iceland, but counting on enough carbon capture to save us from global warming is suicide. It's like believing in unicorns. On another note, in the UK, three climate activists were acquitted by a British jury. As Kenny Stancil reports in the journal Common Dreams, Reverend Sue Parfitt, 79, Father Martin Newell, 54, and former university lecturer Phil Kingston, 85, were all found not guilty of violating the Malicious Damages Act. The three are part of Christian Climate Action, which is part of Extinction Rebellion. They claimed stopping a train was tiny and reasonable given the existential threat of climate change. The jury agreed. What about the doomsday clock? No doubt you heard that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists kept their doomsday clock at 100 seconds to midnight. But Brian Can and Caitlin McGarry suggest it is time to retire the clock. Unlike the measurable moment of a nuclear exchange, with relentless climate change, there never is a midnight for everyone. Writing in Gizmodo, January 20th, they say, quote, But there will never actually be a midnight for the climate crisis. Midnight arrives at different times for every person on Earth. Futurist Alex Steffen has said that the present is transapocalyptic, a phrase that perfectly encapsulates this form of existence. We live today in a world where some people worry about their family surviving the trip to the next source of water, and others fret over having to buy their second favorite brand of coffee, he wrote. A transapocalypse is a spectrum. In that spectrum, there is no midnight. The bell will never toll for the planet. Instead, it's just shades of night that we all live through at various points. Even when society halts our carbon-fueled nightmare by ending the use of fossil fuels, the return to daylight will not be linear or evenly distributed. That quote comes from Brian Can and Caitlin McGarry in Gizmodo, we should get Alex Steffen on Radio EcoShock to talk about the transapocalypse. I'm going to ask him. But coming up next, how can we stop buying our way into hell? You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Feeling down? Does your status need a boost? Buy something. Show the world who you are, from your car to your shoes. A thousand screens cajole and shout, buy this ticket to happiness. Canadian author Michael John Harris has a different prescription for what ails us. His first book won Canada's Top Book Award. It was called The End of Absence, Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection. His latest work is All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. From Vancouver, Canada, Michael John Harris, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Michael, where did the mythology of consumer culture come from? Did it evolve naturally or was it manufactured? Uh, I think the answer is yes <laughs> to, to both of those. It certainly has, let's say, its foundations in basic human chemistry, uh, and, you know, our dopamine systems that are just wiring us to gather resources, right? But like so many things, our, uh, our culture evolves faster than our biology. And that means that certain elements of culture can kind of hijack that biology. So while it has a natural origin, it's also been unnaturally amped up, shall we say, by uh, the ad men of the world, by the uh, Instagram influencers of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, Mr. Bernay and the tobacco lobby, you give a really great portrait in that book, and it's a little bit scary what they got going way back in the 20s and 30s as radio was starting to crest as the new media. Yeah, so that's Edward Bernays, yeah. I guess the idea there is, you know, in the 19th century, you've got industrialization taking off, and for the first time in human history, people are, I mean, not just aristocrats, but ordinary people are able to buy things that they don't necessarily need. That creates a new problem, though, for those who are creating those products. You have to invent desire. It's not enough for someone to need that thing they're making. They have to want it. And that's where you get uh, people like Edward Bernays, who is this kind of wizard of, of advertising in the 1920s. He, in that chapter, uh, you know, I go on about how he helped create a kind of a, a myth of identity politics, really, around cigarettes and how if you bought cigarettes, it was really about uh, buying your own freedom for, for these women who had been told by the public that they weren't supposed to smoke in public. Yes, I think now, though, we live in kind of a paradoxical world. We may realize that that gas car we want may make the future worse for our grandchildren, but we still want it, and and that's in all of us, it seems. Why is that, do you think? Well, I mean, that, that idea of dopamine, we are wired to hoard resources. It often feels almost painful to deny ourselves something, right? I mean, this is why there's centuries of, of, of work uh, trying to, people trying to move into a more monastic state or trying to deny themselves things. It's constantly uh, kind of low-level torture, isn't it, to not have that which you could have. And, you know, far smarter people than I have tried to escape that. Um, this, this book that I've written is not going to fix that for everybody, but it certainly is pointing toward the alternative ways of measuring your life, which if we, if we don't do it to avoid climate catastrophes, it's the sort of thing that we're going to have to do after the fact in reaction to those climate catastrophes. So I don't know that we have a way out of, of this problem so much as a, a way to think about what life looks like as the problem progresses. I wonder if we're just neuron machines that can be steered towards any project, uh, why don't we just inject the dopamine directly and save the planet a lot of uh, grief of our waste and pollution? <laughs> well, some people have, have tried that. When you run out of uh, dopamine, you, you, you're similar to a patient with Parkinson's disease, so I'm not sure that we can live very well without it. But, you know, uh, scientists, there's a scientist, Kent Berridge, that I talk about in the book, who has drilled little holes into albino rats and attempted to knock out their dopamine fibers. And what he found is that those rats were 
without dopamine, kind of incapable of wanting things. And as a result, they started to uh, starve to death. They couldn't even bring themselves to eat or, or, or drink water, or, or mother their young, for that matter. So we probably want to find some kind of, uh, of a sweet balance if we, if we start uh, knocking dopamine out. How is it you published two books about disconnecting from the online world to rediscover the virtues of solitude? And yet, I think you write for the popular tech podcast Command Line Heroes, don't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Command Line Heroes is a podcast largely inspired by like the open source movement. And you know, I, I think this brings up a good point, which is the work that I do is can sometimes be misconstrued as kind of naysaying or, or telling people to not take part in contemporary culture. What I'm really interested in is figuring out how do we live in today's world in a healthy way. So if I'm writing about consumer culture, it's not to say that, that humans are going to thrive if we just get rid of all trade. I, I would never say that. And then writing about our online lives, I, I'm, I'm not a proponent of demolishing the Internet. I would never say that either. It really is about understanding that we have tools that we use and that these tools are neither good nor evil, but are, are also not neutral. That uh, everything in contemporary, like all these levers in contemporary life, have to be proactively used. In Season 8 of Command Line Heroes, you talk about robotics. There's a lot of talk about becoming transhuman, getting some sort of implants to maybe get access right within our brains to Wikipedia and, and entertainment. Would you even consider becoming transhuman if you could see other people really advancing with it? Would, would I personally consider yeah. that? I, I would not. <laughs> I'm not an anti-science person, but I am, I am a pro-human one. <laughs> My uh, bias there would be to hold on to my failing little human body, I think. So from inside this, what is now a global bubble of consumer culture, the story seems so strong, it's almost eternal, self-replicating, but you call it fragile. Why Why is that? You're right. It, there's a kind of contradiction there. Billions more people we know are going to be joining the consumer party over the next few decades as, as billions more people enter the middle class and are able to spend money on more than just their basic needs. So there is a sort of tidal wave of consumer culture that is no doubt coming our way. And yet, you know, as when we talk about Instagram influences or that Edward Bernays figure who's a sort of master of advertising, we know that we're also being pulled this way and that by basic human actors by policies that allow planned obsolescence to be thriving, that you know, all, all, all of these things are in, in a way manufactured as well. So it's fragile insofar as it is a, a single monomyth that does not need to be a monomyth. What I mean by that is the story of consumer culture, the all-enveloping story of it, uh, that this is the only way you can value or measure your life. That's the fragile part, because humanity uh, for thousands of years has, has had other ways of measuring their lives, other stories about what life is and what it's for. And the re- rediscovery of those stories is what, uh, what gives me hope. 
I noticed that kid gamers can buy tokens that give them more weapons or treasure, but really nothing physical is exchanged. Bitcoin's sort of virtual. Maybe corporations will move away from physical products which damage the environment to virtual ones, and that way the consumer culture could evade any deadline imposed by the physical world and just keep carrying on. Do you think consumer culture can survive by going virtual in some way? Yeah, that's a super interesting problem. I mean, on the one hand, yes, that on, on the face of it, that makes sense, doesn't it? I, I would argue, though, that uh, our digital lives are not uh, carbon neutral. You know, obviously, our digital lives use up enormous loads of energy. So we've invisibilized the waste there, uh, but we have not done away with it. So there's that aspect to it. In general, you know, there's something called the Jevons paradox that I talk about in in the book, and that's that's this idea that resource efficiency leads to greater consumption. and And I wonder if that has something to tell us there. That you know, as as we start to digitize our lives, we we think that we've made everything extremely efficient and low waste, but the ease of it leads to greater consumption levels that end up balancing out the difference. Do you think we're heading towards an automated economy with just a fraction of the former workers on the job? And if so, what happens to those millions of people who were consumers and their dream to buy happiness? Whether or not we're moving toward a universal basic income or an economy where the majority of us have our jobs automated away, I really leave that to much smarter people. I'm not an economist. I do think, though, that insofar as our lives become automated and labor is removed from our day-to-day, that's where that opening comes, where we can start to hopefully embrace new stories, new narratives about how we measure our lives. So, for example, one of the chapters in the book is about craft and discovering new kinds of labor that can ground you and give you a a deeper sense of connection to the material reality underpinning our lives. If to a certain degree people become underemployed in the future, my hope would be that instead of just playing video games all day, that we could open a door into craft uh, to discover new kinds of labor. Billions of people do identify themselves, though, with the things that they own. Do you think that there is something inside us that can self-rescue transcending this thinghood? Or or do we have to wait for other forces like climate change and big storms and disasters to to shake us out of it? Yeah. A friend of mine recently asked me if I was optimistic or hopeful. And he, he defined those two things, optimistic as being thinking that we were going to actually fix this on our own, that we were going to come around to something, and hopeful as in imagining that there was a way out maybe post-disaster. And I think I'm more hopeful than I am optimistic. I don't believe that human nature, which is so wedded at this point to consumer culture, is likely to radically transform. Um, I, I think we're much more likely to respond to sticks than to carrots. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Canadian author Michael John Harrison. He's the author of All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. 
In your new book, you don't leave the reader stuck in a terminal dystopia. The surprise, though, is that you start with an answer from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. What about his life qualified Aristotle to speak to our current vision of consumer happiness thousands of years later? So Aristotle had a very strange job sort of midway through his life. He was hired by wicked King Philip, who was king of the Macedonians, and he was brought there to tutor Philip's son, uh, who would grow up to be Alexander the Great. By all accounts, Alexander was not a great philosophy student, but there was something of value for Aristotle when he was up there. He was able to watch the wealthiest people in his in his world as they backstabbed, as they betrayed each other, as as they lived really miserable lives. In fact, Philip himself was literally backstabbed by one of his uh, royal guards, I believe, and that's how he died. The the result of all that was that Aristotle sort of wandered away as as Alexander the Great went off to conquer Persia and started to think about what all those wealthy people had been doing wrong. And he decided they were pursuing the wrong thing in life. They were, they were going for external values, for external validation, all that money, all that power. And he proposed instead something called eudaimonia, which was his word for human flourishing. In other words, becoming the best version of, of a person, of, of who you are. And to attain eudaimonia, you weren't pursuing things that you could get or that you could win or achieve. It was it's always things that, uh, that you live. It's things that you experience in your day-to-day. So that became my goal in the latter half of this book, was to search out those eudaimonia-inspiring alternative stories, those other ways of measuring your life that are not things that you can ever capture and kill or, or hold on to like a pile of money, but things that you can live with every day and, and that become part of your, your soul or your, your identity. But I gather this isn't the sort of thing that you can just offer a step-by-step roadmap, all right, do this, this, and this. It's <laughs> something that we, each of us, have a different venture that we have to uh, take on. Absolutely. Yeah, this is not a, uh, a five easy steps to personal enlightenment uh, <laughs> kind of idea. It's, 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 it's not even a prescription at all. It's really a description of, of a difference. And, you know, as we were saying before, I, I'm not sure that these, are, these alternate stories or alternate modes of being are things that are going to prevent disaster or, or that, we, that we're even going to fully embrace on our own terms. They, they may well be modes of life that are simply handed to us 100 years down the road. Michael, why did you include a family experience of dementia in a book about consumerism? So one of those alternate stories that I became interested in uh, is care, is taking care of other people. And I didn't know I was going to write about that, but at the, about halfway through the book, something in my personal life started to overwhelm my days, and that was that my husband's mother uh, had severe dementia. And watching Kenny, my husband, take care of his mother just became this object lesson in another, another uh, life measure, another mode of being that seemed to be almost entirely divorced from consumer culture. 
consumer culture is always asking us, you know, what can you get? How can you be happy? And when we take care of people, even though we become enormously invested, enormously actualized as humans, we aren't necessarily happy, right? And it kind of exposes the lie of that, that happiness is not really the point of life. It's only one story about life, and we need many stories, including care and the sublime and and, uh, craft, all these other stories to build a, a truly rich life. You know, I'm working my way through a school called long-termism, also known as existential risk. So there are influential Oxford philosophers like Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord assume that humans are in control of our destiny. And yet you write in your book about conditions where you visit places where awe takes over and almost rewrites the inside of you. Do you think that we rule over our future or nature now? I don't know how to answer that. I feel that we are drops of water on a wave of history and that we sometimes like to think that the drops of water at the front of that wave are somehow controlling the wave. I think I tend toward Tolstoy's vision of history, that idea that you know Napoleon, for example, does not shape the world. He is, in a way, a symptom of changes. So yes and no. I, I imagine that we each have a certain latitude, a certain amount of control within our daily lives, but we are we are also tiny animals crawling around inside a sort of infinite clockwork that we're only barely aware of. So I I, I tend toward thinking that that human will is is not so effective as we like to think. Well, lately I've been re-examining the idea of nature worship. I mean, it's been ridiculed and demoted, but there is such a place for awe and creation, and we're better people when we feel it. I don't think, though, that we need to travel somewhere exotic and big to find it. I think we can find it right at our feet if we're outside or or right in the sky. Absolutely. So in, in the book, when I, you know, there's a chapter on the sublime as one of those alternative stories. For the sake of you know, extreme illustration. I, I go to Lake Louise in Canada, which is you know, sort of a sublime setting, and I hike around the skirt of, it, of the glacier there. But you can discover sublime, of course, in your backyard. You can discover it by staring up at the stars at night. You can even close your eyes and contemplate infinity. People discover the sublime in observing a single leaf, even. So that's that's the wonderful thing thing about it, right? Is that the natural world's intricacy is so grand, so over overpowering once we pay attention to it, that it really is constantly at hand. The gift of the sublime, of course, is that once you're paying attention to the the miracles of the natural world, you become hopefully less likely to want to destroy that natural world. It it imbues us with a love for the planet that we depend on. I was wondering if your vision of solitude, which is a continuing story, I think, in in your life, if it's partly Canadian, because we have in Canada the vast spaces that are still, well, we call them empty, but they're not. They're full of nature. How does your call away from a purchased self differ from the withdrawal practiced, say, in India or or even in the Christian monasteries? Mm. Yeah, I think there's something similar there. when in my second book, Solitude, what I came to was a feeling that to truly love other people, I needed to move away from them. 
And this was how appreciation, in fact, worked, that we could get crowd sickness if we were never spending time developing our, our interior lives. Similarly, in consumer culture, I actually think moving away from the sort of crowds of things leads to a greater love of things, of material reality. For example, I have you know a, a vase that I bought when I was 10 years old. I'm 40, almost 42 now, and that vase is still you know the my my favorite object. And I I spent all all the money in the world that I had, which was a hundred dollars at the time when I was 10, buying this vase from a from a potter on one of the Gulf Islands off the coast of BC. And I think if we moved away from the sort of fast fashion ideas and toward truly loving the things that we buy a little more, then that would be a way of sort of using human hedonism to counter consumer culture a little. If we could buy things that we truly respected uh, the materiality of, things that we were going to hold on to for 30, 40, 50 years, that might be one step. So here we are, tossed around by weather emergencies that are really climate emergencies during a global pandemic in a state of overshoot. Does your book give us some tools to help us rethink and cope? I think it gives us a it, it gives us those alternate stories that we may be needing after the fact. Again, I I don't think anyone's going to give you five easy steps that's going to stop the environmental disasters that are already baked into our near future. But I do think that as those disasters play out, as a new generation, maybe a slightly more aware generation, comes up younger than myself and my friends, my hope is that those younger people will begin to discover those new ways of measuring their lives. And that's what this book is trying to begin to sketch out, is what those other ways of measuring our lives might be. Can you see where you're going next with your work, or is it the kind of thing you have to live through to know? I've spent the last, uh, let's see, decade or so writing books that are fairly abstract, that are, that are you know, thinking about how we live today, kind of zeitgeist books. And I sort of said what I needed to say in those three books about that they're all sort of about a, a removal from from the edge of contemporary life to try and find balance in our lives. And it's funny you should ask because I've I've actually decided to do something dramatically different next, which is I want to write a, uh, a thriller novel because I just I'm hungry for I think action in my writing and, and something that feels very fresh. So I'm going to be focusing on that for the next little while. We'll look forward to it. We have been speaking with Canadian author Michael John Harris. His latest book is All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. Find more at www.michaeljohnharris.com, and you can listen to this program again or share it free at ecoshock.org. Michael Harris, thank you for sharing with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is Radio EcoShock. Laid up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. In future shows, I will be looking more at the future. Suspiciously, of course. 
We know governments and people around the world have notoriously failed to organize a common defense for coming generations, not to mention the miracle of all life on this planet. Now they have a new song. Is it another lullaby to soothe baby while the building burns? Stay tuned. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Yeah.